From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Science writer, founding member of Principia Scientific International, Joseph A. Olson is here. We've been discussing abiotic oil. And uh, we're also going to get into some of the nagging questions, perplexing questions having to do with NASA's Saturn V rocket. Uh, rockets and uh, the lunar landing, uh, lunar lander used in the uh, Apollo program and the moon mission. They don't quite add up, as we'll uh, discover. Uh, also, we'll discuss the potential dangers of 5G and uh, your phone calls. Before we get back to Joseph Olson, don't forget you can listen to me weekday afternoons, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every day, Monday to Friday, 4 to 6 at Saga, S A U G A, Saga. 960am.ca Monday to Friday 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Next week is Orthodox Easter. So I'll be uh, dipping into the audio archives and presenting a uh, repeat broadcast next week. The following week, Derek Gilbert from Skywatch TV and the author of Giants, Gods and Dragons will be here in hour 1 and Joe Lorendo, the author of Cosmic Coincidences will be along for the second hour. And then in 3 weeks, I believe Joseph Farrell has uh, confirmed for at least an hour. Maybe I can convince him to stick around for the full two hours. And just one final note before we get back to Joseph. Another Joseph, Joseph Kelly. Uh, Joseph, I want to thank you for your tremendous support. He just signed on at patreon.com slash strange planet. And he is uh, now uh, an official donor of strange planet in the star chamber tier. That's $50 a month. Joseph Kelly, thank you so much for your support. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, back to Joseph Olson, science writer, founding member of Principia Scientific International. Just tell us a little bit about this organization. Uh, how would you describe it? Is it a think tank? Who's involved and what do you do? Well, John O'Sullivan got together a group of writers for our book back in 2010. And we realized right away that we were having difficulty because... They'd already set the two sides of the fixed debate, and that's the, you know, carbon is the most terrible thing in the world, and it's a toxin, and it's destroying the planet. We, you know, it's going to be gone in no time. Those are the group I called the warmest. And then we have the group of people that are about equally funded by the government, so they can't get too far off the reservation, but they can say, oh, carbon dioxide warms the planet. It's a greenhouse warming gas, which you've already discussed. No gas is warming. So then they say that it warms a little bit. And we've they've squandered over $100 billion on this. And like I said in one of my articles, if all you fund is findings for danger, danger is all you're going to find. So right. So this is controlled that, opposition, in other words. Yes, and that and that's how they've kept this debate going for at least the 10 years that Principal Scientific has been in existence. So we decided that if we didn't have our own website where we could control, <laughs> not that we control, we don't really control the comment sections unless somebody's just abusive, but we control the content coming in. And, and if there's something that we want to be objective about and say, well, this is what the opposition's done, then we provide a rebuttal for that. We also were a, a place to publish articles by by people that were doing unique research that reinforced the the 
principles that we were espousing, which were that carbon dioxide is a benefit to the planet and that no gas is warming the planet and that fossil fuels are a benefit to humanity and that if we're not harvesting and using them, they're a detriment to the environment. And those are pretty basic concepts. So that's why we created Principles Scientific. We have published works by a uh, professor at uh, University of Monterey, Nassif Nassal. He did a complete redo of the 1909 experiment that was done by Professor Robert Woods at Stanford University, where he proved that infrared light is not trapped inside a greenhouse. The only way a greenhouse warms is by reducing the convection loss. So if you're not having air moving out of the greenhouse, then that air can still transfer radiant energy back through the glass. So the greenhouse doesn't have any effect at all. So he reproduced that experiment. Then he also went out and did a 28-day experiment where he measured the actual back radiation photons and found out that the only photons that were coming back to the Earth were not because they were emitted from the Earth, captured by a CO2 molecule and bounced back to the Earth, which is what they claim, but that these were uh, photons that were coming in along uh, magnetic flux lines from the sun all the way around the Earth, which had been predicted by NASA, and he measured them in the exact same amount that NASA had predicted, although they never bothered to measure them. So this is the only measure, the only experiment ever done to actually measure back radiation. And he proved why are big oil both. companies on side now with the warmists, or as I, I refer to them as the climate change alarmists? Why wouldn't they continue just to milk that cow of scarce oil well, into the foreseeable future forever? Why are they now? Agreeing with the warmest. You should mention that. I was on a camp out with a bunch of my, you know, male bonding friends about a decade ago, and he was a, a executive with Shell, and I asked him, you know, why are you trying to do this? He goes, we think of it as another revenue stream. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, who's going to pay to do all of that carbon capture and, and redeposit? We're going to get paid for it, so we don't care if, if we're gouging all the customers. I went... Well, that's a pretty cynical way of doing things. But, you know, they look at everything as just uh, what's in their best interest. Uh, I wrote a great article that I uh, submitted to a petroleum magazine, and they had I'd had discussions with the editor of that magazine, and she said that, well, I've read your articles at Canada Free Press and Principles Scientific, and you sound very knowledgeable, and we'd love to have you as a guest on our radio program. We'd love to have you publish in our magazine, but we can't do anything that's not an original publication. So I wrote an article called Muscle Power of Carbon Empowerment, and that's at uh, Principles Scientific. And I covered the information that we talked about, Thomas Gold, and a lot of the history about the, my, the actual facts of global warming and of peak oil. But then I also mentioned that LNG was not really a, a very good idea. This is liquefied natural gas. You take natural gas, you chill it down to minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit, which in order to do that, it takes more energy than the fuel itself actually has. So you're actually doubling your fuel cost. And then you put it in a chirogenic tank. Well, there's a thing called chirogenic embrittlement. These tanks 
are not standardized by the DOT. So what they did is they said, well, each tank has to have a manway big enough that you can climb inside and do a visual inspection for cracks so that these things don't explode while they're out in the ocean. And they're covered with insulation, but as anybody knows, you can put a thermos bottle, you can put whatever temperature material you want in it over a period of time, it's going to still be able to radiate enough energy that it's going to reach the ambient temperature. So it doesn't matter how good a thermos bottle you make, if you pour boiling water in it or you put in uh, dry ice, it's going to eventually get to room temperature, and that's going to actually happen pretty quick. So those big vessels that they're uh, shipping LNG around are also refrigerated. And they're only a one-way cargo because they can't carry anything else with the, that. Uh, so bottom line is, I didn't think that was a very good use of uh, natural gas resources. But I had also read on the 90-year-old Fisher-Tropis process that we had talked about. And then in 2015, there was a professor at Texas A&M, Kenneth R. Hall, who did a scalable gas-to-liquid conversion unit where they could take natural gas and make ultra-pure gasoline, which had zero level of emissions because it burned so clean, and it met the requirements for aviation fuel. He wrote an uh, article, and it was, uh, Professor's Natural Gas Refining Process Results in Industry Breakthrough. It's at the Texas A&M Education site. But if you put that exact title in Google search, you won't find that article. If you don't put his name and TAMU, so if you don't know exactly where to hunt in 2015, you won't find that article. But his process in 2015 was scalable and could produce gasoline at $4 per gallon, which is what it was during the Obama era. Well, now it wouldn't be practical because during Trump, when they started adding additional capacity in America, the price got down to $2 a gallon. But aviation fuel still remains high. The average price for aviation fuel in the United States right now is $4.50 a gallon. And in spot markets, it would be as much as $12 a gallon. And a lot of those spot markets have little stripper wells where they're producing a low level of petroleum, but they're also getting natural gas, and the natural gas is not in quantities big enough to connect to a pipeline, so they just flare it off. Well, rather than flare that gas, you could run it through one of these suitcase-sized boxes and produce gasoline that you could store, and you could uh, sell the gasoline directly to the airport that's a mile down the road. So bottom yeah. line is, I was trying to promote something that was very... And that's why I thought the energy industry was like, well, gee, he's going against the LNG market. Let's don't publish his article. But turns out there was a, quote, fellow skeptic scientist that slandered me, and I actually bragged about it in an email, and that's why I didn't get to, to be a guest on this radio program or have an article published. So, you know, it's kind of crazy that, that even after the climate gate stuff, we thought that this type of um, intellectual sabotage had ended, but it absolutely has not. So wind and uh, wind turbines and solar uh, farms, solar farms, uh, it seems to me that they're going to require a great deal of oil, uh, hydrocarbons, in order to produce them. Uh, and once you 
start manufacturing. You mentioned Honda, I think, is is uh, going all electric by 2040. A number of uh, automotive manufacturers uh, have announced, you know, that they're going EV very soon. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to have 150 million cars or whatever the number is in North America, all charging at night. Uh, where are they going to get that electricity from? Yes, isn't that an interesting problem? Uh, I've done analysis on um, particularly photo cells, photoelectric cells, and they are net energy losers. And the same thing with windmills. The, you know, the windmills, you have to melt steel at 2,700 degrees to make the steel pylons that they're supported on. You have to use uh, high-temperature uh, petroleum products to produce the fiberglass blades that they use. You have to burn uh, lime under 3,500-degree uh, temperature to get the, the cement, the Portland cement that you use to mix with uh, sand and gravel. And there again, you're talking... A horsepower is lifting one cubic foot of dirt four feet in the air. A horsepower is 770 watts, and if you're getting 1.5 watts per square foot, that means you have to have a 50 by, I mean, a 25 by 20 solar cell to produce one horsepower. Think of the tons of earth that have to be moved in order to get the raw materials to manufacture those things, the amount of energy it takes to produce them. Um, and then the amount of energy it takes to ship them, and then the amount of energy that nobody's figured into the equation to recycle this garbage. They're cutting up windmills all over the place and taking them to giant landfills because they can't practically remove the fiberglass any other way. So they are all net energy losers, and they're just eco-trinkets. It's a bunch of what I call um, Pied Piper professors using chicken little science to force Jack and the Beanstalk solutions. It's it's just ridiculous fables. And, and where are they going to get all the rare earths needed uh, for, you know, these batteries? Uh, I, I can't imagine that that these regimes that own most of these rare earths, namely communist China, uh, are going to be adhering to the strictest uh, environmental or labor laws uh, I can't imagine that the, the production of these batteries for all of these uh, electric vehicles are going to be the most ethical uh, or environmentally friendly. Well, the, the only real supply of cobalt that's needed to stabilize lithium batteries comes out of the Congo, and that's done with uh, child labor because it takes little kids to climb through the little seams to dig out the cobalt rock that they use to stabilize that. So that's definitely blood money. Um, the other factor is, you know, we had mentioned earlier that the cost of certain elements have a intrinsic value, and I'd said something about the most expensive metal. That is rhodium, and it's $920 a gram. Well, a gram's 28 ounces, so that's $26,700 per ounce. Compare that to gold at $1,700 per ounce. Absolutely ridiculous. So, and the United States has larger deposits of rare earth elements than Canada does, I mean, than China does, but they're all on government lands, and the government refuses to allow extraction because there's dangerous levels of thorium, and they don't want us to refine the thorium because they don't want us to use thorium as a power plant source. 
because you don't get plutonium and you don't get weapons-grade uranium out of thorium. It's completely safe. You know, the whole thing is just such a complete jumble of absurd priorities that are not based on the best needs of human beings. They're based on the best needs of the a power structure that is cannibalistic. And I'm sorry, there's no other way to describe the behavior that they treat the rest of the planet. How are these solar panels going to do anything if Bill Gates is intent on dimming the sun? Yes, that's an interesting question, because it's dimming the same rays that liberate the uh, free ad, uh, electrons that are, that are baked into the solar cells. The way the typical solar cell works is that you have a crystalline cubic grid of silicon, which is about 95% pure, and then you embed it with phosphorus and boron. The boron has five outer shell electrons, one of them which it can't hang on to very well, and so when it's exposed to sunlight, that one um, electron vibrates enough that it can move through the phosphorus part of the cell and leave the cell at one and a half volts direct current and one and a half watts per square foot. But it doesn't go out and work all day long and come back and get in the cell to do work tomorrow. It's being eroded. It's nothing but molecular erosion. It's a parlor trick. And, and there's a limited amount of boron on the planet. And once you start running out of boron, and a great movie to explain all of this to you is one that was um, produced by uh, Michael Moore and got him banned on YouTube. It's called Planet of the Humans. And they're taking a quartz mountain in South Carolina, blasting it out because it's the purest source of silicon that they've located it, shipping it to China, breaking it down into the elements and then uh, uh, to, to just fine powder, and then they bake it in an oven 1,000 degrees, which is 1,700, uh, centigrade, 1700 degrees Fahrenheit, under a vacuum. Well, where does the energy come from to heat that oven and to pull it down to a vacuum? That's a lot of energy. If you're getting one and a half watts per square foot, how many solar cells does it take to blast that mountain, haul it uh, to the port, ship it halfway around the world, bake it in an oven, and then put it on a ship and ship it back? My God, it's absolutely insane. A hundred solar cells in their whole service life could never produce the energy it takes to manufacture one solar cell. It's right, and the, the batteries to store, to store all of this energy, uh, I read recently that uh, um, Elon Musk has the, the largest battery factory in the world. It would take his factory 500 years to produce enough batteries which would provide the Earth's needed energy for one day. Right. Do those numbers because make sense? You, you can't store alternating current. Alternating current is just a pulse where you're sending the, the electrons don't actually move down the wire. What moves down the wire is just a change in, in positive and negative between the alternating current. So you're, you're forcing a wave through the wire, and the wave is what's actually doing the work. Well, Tesla proved in the 1880s in his war with Edison that alternating current was the only way to uh, transmit power over long distances and was the most efficient because you could transmit one voltage and then use transformers to break it down to a whole bunch of other uh, more useful voltages. 
And that's the way the whole system of the world works. Nobody uses direct current for anything more than a starter motor at your house or your flashlight. Okay, Joseph, so, i got to take a quick time out here. We'll uh, pardon the interruption. We'll come back, discuss some more. I promise we will get to the, uh, the Saturn V rockets and the lunar lander and uh, 5G. Joseph Olson, Principia Scientific International, back with more in a moment. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, welcome back. Let's move on and talk about the Saturn V rocket, of course, which delivered the lunar lander to the uh, the moon back in uh, 69 and uh, for all Apollo missions. What can you tell us about some problems it has to do with fuel storage that much i understand but just walk us through the perplexing issue with the saturn V rocket and the lunar lander well i didn't want to wear every tinfoil hat in the house but i had attended a conference um jfk conference in november of 2017 and i met james fetzer who had interviewed me uh, a number of times he's probably interviewed me almost two dozen times at this point but I met him, and he sold me a copy of a book, Nuclear Bombs Destroyed the World Trade Centers, and then also We Didn't Walk on the Moon. Well, I'd already read an enormous amount of material on the nuclear bombs in the World Trade Center, and so I kind of backburnered that one. But I read through his book on We Didn't Walk on the Moon, and it was mostly based on photographic evidence, and the hypothesis is that Stanley Kubrick filmed it in London at the same time he was doing the stage sets for his uh, 2001 Space Odyssey movie. And so it was all very crude CGI for that period of time, which is back in 1969. And I didn't want to believe that NASA would lie to us, and I did want to believe in American technical superiority. And so I was like very hesitant to want to get involved in it, but the photographic evidence was pretty compelling. I said, well, I'm not going to make any public statements that doesn't have science that's independent of anything that I've already read. So lo and behold, and I'm not sure exactly what the date was when this was published, but Space.com did an article. It's Space.com slash 18. 422, Apollo Saturn versus Moon Rocket NASA graphics. They took the actual NASA graphics and they showed the projections for what happened during the launch. And I looked at it and I went, NASA's providing the evidence that absolutely proves there was no way that this could have possibly happened. So we're starting off with the Stage 1. Now the Stage 1 portion of the Saturn V rocket held 521,000 gallons of fuel. That lifted the rocket from Cape Canaveral up to 42 miles above the atmosphere and a speed of 5,300 miles per hour. Well, 4,200 miles, uh, 42 miles up is how high the top of the atmosphere is. So at that point, you have no atmospheric restriction on the, on your acceleration. So then the second stage of the rocket held 340,000 gallons of fuel, and that boosted the rocket up to 118 miles altitude and a speed of 17,400 miles. My word, that's a lot of fuel. Yes. Well, then the only remaining stage is stage three, 
and that's only 86,000 gallons. But you haven't reached escape velocity. Escape velocity for Earth is 2,500 miles per hour. So where's that extra speed going to come from? And then once you get, because the moon has one-sixth the gravity of the Earth, and it's 240,000 miles away, that means you've got 200,000 miles that you have to travel away from Earth to get out of Earth's gravity. But then even if you entered the moon's gravity 40,000 miles away from the moon, you would have at zero velocity entering moon's gravity. You would have a velocity of um, 100,000 miles per hour at at six meters per second acceleration when you smacked into the moon. So you have to have energy rocket fuel to slow you down in order to... Right, like a reverse thruster. Reverse thruster. And then you have to have the energy to get from the command module down to the moon and then to get off of the moon. And if you look at the newest thing that NASA just produced, the Armis um, lander that they're showing that Musk is going to produce, it's going to have a circling space station on the moon so they can send fuel loads up, and the thing that's landing on the moon looks like the same size as the Saturn rocket. So they, they're even now admitting that something as Mickey Mouse as the lunar lander would be required to be as large as the Saturn rocket just to be able to land on the moon. It's absolutely in other words, absurd. In other words, just, just escaping uh, the Earth's atmospheric drag or the, the, you know, and the gravitational pull, you're going to need 512,000 gallons of fuel to get you to 42 miles altitude. Then you're going right. to need another 24,000, uh, sorry, yeah. another um, um, 340,000 gallons of fuel to get to 115 miles. And then um, you've got to have, uh, then okay, so then you've got to have something left to to slow down the lunar the lander. Gravity and then, yeah, and then slow down the moon, then land on the moon, then get back off the moon, and then get a, escape from the moon's gravity to get back to Earth. And then you're going to be coming back to Earth at such a high speed, you have to have retro rockets to slow you down coming back to Earth. So where is all the fuel storage, in other words? Well, yeah, you're short a whole bunch. Uh, it's amazing that given 50 years of improved um, rocket telemetry and uh, computing and, and ballistic information, we're, we're a hell of a lot smarter than we were 50 years ago. And the fact is, when they had the Apollo 13 uh, accident, they sent three engineers into three different rooms with slide rules and said, do the calculations for the thrust burn because it would take our computers an hour to do that. And five minutes later, all three engineers came out, and they compared their answers. They were correct. They said, okay, this is the, the timing of the thrust, and this is the amount of thrust, and that's what brought the Apollo 13 capsule back. So we didn't have, we didn't have the level of a, of a cell phone capability in all of NASA as far as computing power in 1969. Well, the Chinese are now hoping to land their Chang-7 uh, orbiter on the moon and bring back two kilos of rocks. Well, it's, you know, a kilo is 2.2 pounds. They're going to bring back 4.5 pounds of rock. The astronauts would have produced more 4.5 pounds of solid waste in their diapers while they were on the moon. And that brings up the next little issue with the moon, 
in our book, um, Slaying the Sky Dragon, we showed the cycle of temperature on the moon. The surface of the moon um, is always facing the sun. I mean, always the same side facing the earth, excuse me. So the same side right. is always facing the earth. So that means in their 28-day rotation around the earth, you have 14 days of night on the moon, and then you have 14 earth days of sunshine. Well, the equatorial temperature on the moon is 260 degrees Fahrenheit by day. It's minus 315 degrees by night, and that temperature swing happens in about a six- or eight-hour earth period. So that means that, that you've got boiling hot temperatures that you couldn't survive with any kind of spacesuit and freezing cold temperatures you couldn't survive in any spacesuit except for a one-hour, two-hour period where it would probably be between 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 30 degrees Fahrenheit where you could get out and drive your golf cart on the moon and then hurry up and get away from there because that's the reality of the moon. And that doesn't even mention the fact that you have no protection against the gamma rays that are coming from the sun and from the rest of the solar system. Those are pretty extreme conditions to operate a mechanical Hasenblatt camera as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's no way. Why why didn't they have any degradation from cosmic rays? You send a um, regular Kodachrome film through the metal detector at the airport and ends up with speckles and, du- and and snowflakes all over it. So yeah, none of that happened either. Yeah, the whole thing right. is absolutely absurd. And you have no you have lubricants inside no uh, a Hasenblatt camera you, they, and there would be some off-gassing and so forth. I mean, how would the shutter operate? How would uh, it, it does, how, how are you going to operate those cameras, the uh, the focus ring, or I suppose it was automatic focus, but how do you look into the, the, the viewfinder um, uh, with those huge helmets on uh, without, you know, cutting off heads uh, in, in the photo? All the photographs are, are pretty well framed quite nicely. No cut off heads. Uh, I mean, how do they do that with those huge gardening gloves, you know, operate the shutter and all that? It does, it does raise some interesting issues aside from, as you say, the, uh, the, the fuel storage issue and the Saturn V rockets. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back. We'll get to some uh, questions, phone calls. We'll talk 5G, time permitting. Joseph A. Olson with Principia Scientific International stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back. Uh, Joseph, one of our um, YouTube live chat folks, Bigfoot Phil, writes, don't they use trajectory and the moon's gravity and all that rocket science stuff so they don't have to use as much fuel without gravity? Well, if you enter into a system with an excess amount of velocity, then you're going to have a problem with either unintended departure or unintended impact. The reason you can have like a geosynchronous orbit uh, satellite is that you're falling at the same rate of gravity, and that's why you don't have gravitational forces inside uh, orbiting bodies is because they're falling. They have a forward velocity that exactly matches what it would be as if they were falling through the Earth. So 
the reason they, they do the 747 vomit comet is that they fly a parabola. They fly up, and then as the plane falls, it's the same thing as going over the top of a roller coaster. You're zero gravity, but that doesn't mean you're going to always be zero gravity. And if you have too much velocity or too little velocity, you're either going to impact the planet that's got the gravity or you're going to arc off into space. So it's a very narrow balance you have to have as far as the speed and your orbit elevation. So uh, absolutely there was no fuel load available to slow the rocket down to keep it from impacting and certainly no fuel to depart from the capsule, land on the moon and come back to the capsule. And then no fuel to depart moon's gravity and no fuel to keep the acceleration from 200,000 miles to 32. Uh, feet per meter squared acceleration that you get from Earth's gravity. They'd smack into the Earth the same th- same way an asteroid would. And just going in circles around the Earth is not going to solve that problem. You try to circle the Earth and you're going to go arcing off into orbit around another planet. And that's what they use. They use the gravity force like that as a sling to swing satellites into orbit with reduced fuel load. But there's no way that, that you can do that. It's it's a pretty much fixed ratio as, of the forward velocity that you have to have. And I don't remember exactly, but it seems like to do a geosynchronous orbit, you're at 17,000 miles, and you need to have uh, 17,000 miles per hour, roughly something in that area of the same forward velocity to have that same drop. So. Uh- Okay, John Porter in the YouTube live chat asks, if the moon landing was a, a hoax, why didn't the Russians call our bluff? Well, there was a lot of things going on. The Russians were having um, a riots in Czechoslovakia that they were crushing with tanks, so they didn't want to you know, make a big stink about it. And then they said that their um, Luna projects managed to land on the moon and bring rocks back three different times and so we let them tell their little lie and they let us tell our big lie the other factors that were going on in the united states is that in 1968 we assassinated mlk and jfk and we had major riots we had major protests against the vietnam war we had the same folks that were involved in the uh, jfk assassination that wanted to put a glossy frosting layer on the decade of the Kennedys, and so they said we'll complete his mission and fake a um, lunar landing, and that way we can say that we honored his his pledge to put a man on the moon in this decade. And they honored it by faking it in a film studio somewhere. If they didn't do it in Stanley Kubrick's, they probably did it in Lookout Mountain, the CIA film processing uh, studio out in uh, Laurel Canyon. So, all right, uh, Saint Michael, Saint Michael in the YouTube live chat asks, uh, "What about the Apollo 12 ascent stage experiment crashing into the lunar surface and it rang like a bell for a long period of time?" Well, uh, first of all, I doubt that it rang like a bell because there's there's no sound on the moon. The vibrations would have uh, tamped out in a really short period of time. So, I, you know. I kind of distrust NASA, but if you want to have some real information to be upset with NASA about, you should uh, review their future wars. And I sent you a copy of this. 
yes. Future Wars 2025. This was an eight-hour conference where they had 110 slides that they produced, and this is about trauma-based mind control, and the only way that they'd be able to perfect continuation of government was that they were going to have to trauma-base people. And this was right after uh, the Rockefeller and John Hopkins conference, uh, Operation Dark Winter, which was in June of 2001. The NASA Future Wars was in July of 2001. And then we all know what happened in September of 2001. So, mass trauma. I'll say mass yeah, trauma. Yeah. So, yeah. It, I mean, we're going to have to have you back on to discuss. You sent me some wonderful uh, articles, and there's so much here, but um, we'll, we'll get you back yeah, on. Go to, Maybe. Go to. Go to NASA's Future War 2025 at Druid's Theater, WordPress.com. They've got, he's got a great analysis with a whole bunch of those slides. He skips a lot of them because 100 slides is, like, ridiculous. But it's a very good presentation, and it was also filmed by um, Melissa and Aaron Dykes, who do Truthstream Media. They were uh, – Fired by Alex Jones at Infowars, and they uh, ended up getting married and having kids, and and they're film producers, and they live in the Central Texas area. Great work, and they also did another one on uh, U.S. top military secret film studio, and that is the Laurel Canyon thing, and how the CIA has been manipulating Hollywood since World War II started. Hollywood was a major propaganda outlet for the government. And it, it just never stopped. And, you know, we did a, an hour or two-hour interview the day after Thanksgiving uh, 2020 on Body Electric. And uh, that I based a lot of my research on a book written by Robert O. Becker, M.D. And I'd only read the first 300 pages of the book because I had ample evidence to discuss during our two-hour program. But... Uh, was sitting around, you know, wanting to find something to put me to sleep, and there wasn't anything good on the radio, so I thought, well, I'll just finish reading that book. Lo and behold, the reason why they quit funding research that was able to regenerate spinal column injuries and regrow limbs in mammals, the reason they stopped that research in 1968 was that Dr. Becker, because he realized that it was, we're talking milliamp and millivolt DC currents that operate your body, and, and the impact that they have from being in an uh, electrical, magnetically charged radiation environment. And so in the process of doing his research on how to do improvements in biology, which is absolutely fascinating book, I recommend it highly, The uh, Body Electric. Okay, I've got to, sorry, I've got to, we're, we're up against a break here, Joseph, so let me uh, take care of that. We'll come back and discuss uh, further. Joseph Olson stays with us for a few moments yet. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, Joseph, before I go back to the uh, live chat questions, you were talking about uh, Becker's research on the body electric and how the funding was taken away. Did you want to finish up at that point before we move on? Yes. He'd gotten very active in restrictions on power transmission lines because he started finding giant clusters of cancers based on the distance that people were from these high-tension transmission lines, which 
when you're sending electric current, you're also producing uh, radiomagnetic waves. So, and you you can tell that when you drive under transmission wires, if your AM radio's on, it's picking up static. Well, that's because the radio waves that we're traveling through the air are distorted by uh, the electric field. And also, he was uh, very much opposed to the increased uh, use of personal uh, transmission devices, which at that time was limited uh, number of telephones, but there was a lot of citizen band radio that was being used by, by truckers and people like that. And, and he, was, he was doing testing on the amount of radiation that you were actually getting and the tissue damage that was involved in that. And so they ended up cutting all of his funding through the NIH, but because he was highly published and he'd been at a bunch of conferences, he'd networked with a bunch of people across the country, and he kept asking and finding out why in the world did the NIH cut the the uh, research that he was doing on repairing uh, broken spinal columns and, and restoring nerves to people that were invalids, and then also being able to grow lost limbs that they were having high success with. And they said, well, all of the funding for the NIH is diverted through the DOD, and the DOD also controls all the funding for the National Science Foundation. So we've had a weaponized science program in the United States probably since 1900, but certainly since World War II it's been highly weaponized. So they, they've got their own agenda, and their agenda is not what's best for everybody on the planet, unfortunately. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Back to the YouTube live chat. You betcha asks, is there really such a thing, going back to hour one, is there really such a thing as truly green energy sources? Does anything come close? It seems to me anything we use has some kind of ill effect on the environment. Is there anything as green energy, basically truly green energy? I would say that hydrocarbons are the best green energy in the world. They give you uh, CO2, which is a, a plant food, and there's a direct linear correlation in photosynthesis and concentration of CO2. If it's 400 parts per million and you double it to 800, you double the photosynthesis rate, which is more sugars, more starches, and more carbohydrates. If you quadruple it up to 1,600 parts per million, it's a direct linear relationship. So the only negative impact to using hydrocarbons is that you're going to get more plant life. Gee, who wants to have you know more forests and more fields in the world instead of uh, barren land? So that's the only, quote, negative aspect. And the other thing is, if you're not using it, it becomes an environmental hazard. So who wants to have methane floating up and causing forest fires all over the place? Or who wants to have tar balls on their beaches because we quit drilling for oil? Now, one of the silly things that they've come up with is hydrogen fuel. Well, hydrogen is the uh, simplest, but it's also the least energy density of any fuel source known to man. So that means that the hydrogen atom by itself can do hardly any work. They've um, been working on doing uh, fuel cell electric volt conversion, electric vehicle conversion systems. Since I was in college, the um, master's degree program instructor that I had from in my chemistry lab classes got a contract to do direct fuel cells in 1970, and he said, oh, it's 90% efficient. They're going to be, you know, the whole world's going to change, and then nothing's changed. Now Honda was the first to develop a fuel cell car, 
but Toyota is selling their Mira fuel car in California. It costs fifty thousand dollars, and it's, they say that it gets sixty miles per gallon, but that's an e-gallon. Okay, so what they're doing is they're taking hydrogen that they get from one of two sources. Either they use electrolysis of water and split the water molecule, run an electric current through it, in which case you're spending more electricity to change water to hydrogen and oxygen than you get out of the hydrogen. Or they're taking <laughs> it directly from, from uh, methane and they're separating it out, in which case you're taking more energy to take it out of methane. So you've already got a fuel source that has to be subsidized. Then you have a vehicle that has 37.5 gallons of fuel storage. It costs you $100 to fill it up, but those tanks operate under extremely high pressure. The H35 gas that they sell is 5,000 PSI. The H70 gallons, uh, 70 gas is 10,000 psi. Well, a standard scuba tank, steel tank, is 2,500 cubic feet, and it weighs 45 pounds, and that is uh, only um, at um, 2,200 psi. So right, you can have to. These cars are going to have to be very he- very heavy in order to uh, to. Trunk. Uh, it's all filled with these giant pressure vessels in the trunk of the car. And then, right. if you lay a scuba tank out in the sun and it's fully charged, it will explode just from the heat of the expansion from the sunlight. <laughs> Lovely. Heat. Lovely. Yeah, and, it, and then they become giant torpedoes. They just shoot off like, like a rocket because it's exactly what it is. And you imagine these things in a wreck, and, and just because you're not carrying a fuel source on board doesn't mean you're not going to uh, have a wreck with a Tesla that has a lithium battery that's going to burn at 3,000 degrees for for four hours and take 30,000 gallons of water to put out? Or what if you get hit by a tanker, you know, a diesel tanker, and it catches on fire? And next thing you know, you have these three exploding bombs, three fuel tanks inside that Toyota Mira waiting to explode and go in some direction, and you don't know which direction they're going. And then the hydrogen, when it comes out, look at the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg... We used helium in our blimps, but we considered it a strategic material, and we didn't sell it to the Germans because we didn't want them to use it. So they used hydrogen gas in the Hindenburg. Look how quick the Hindenburg blew up. Let me uh, squeeze in one more question here. Huawei, or YY, asks, how do the astronauts pass through the Van Allen belts two times without being burned to a crisp? Yes, that's a very interesting dilemma, and NASA's admitted that they have no way of getting living organisms through the Van Allen belt at today's technology. You well, aren't they thinner at the poles? Couldn't they have done a... Um, yeah, that's, you would have to enter and exit through the poles where, where the actual flux lines come down through the poles, and so you'd have to go escape through that particular little narrow window, and then same thing on re-entering. So, yes, the Van Allen belts is just one additional layer of proof. And I wrote the article, you know, perplexing Apollo questions for NASA and sent it to them in 2018. And here we are three years later. They haven't answered a single question. (laughs) So what are you working on now at Principia Scientific International? I've been doing a lot of work on the Chinese cootie jab. I'm well, <laughs> really opposed to the vaccination program, and I've been opposed to everything that they've done 
as far as lockdowns and contact tracing and social distancing. And so I've written 10 articles that are at Principal Scientific on that subject. One of them goes back to my grandmother lost her mother, father, and 10-year-old brother in 1918 to the Spanish flu when she was 12 years old. So I had read a book by John M. Berry called The Great Influenza, and it listed a whole bunch of additional cofactors. And I read his book twice cover to cover because it had family interest to me. And number one, number two, I had preconceived notions about where the book was going when I started reading it. And when I got finished with it, I went, you didn't understand this book because you didn't realize where it was going. Read it again. So that's one of the few books I've read cover to cover twice in a row. I've read Rise and Fall of the Third Reich four times cover to cover, 1,500 pages by William Shire, only because over a decade you forget how the Nazis did it. The ending is always the same. I read it with the same joy I'd have of feeding myself to a wood chipper a limited time, <laughs> but I needed to know how they did that. And we're All seeing right. the same Nazi program now. All right, we'll uh, we'll get you back on. Uh, soon. Uh, there's just too much information for two hours, Joseph. Always full value. Appreciate it. And uh, be well, my friend. We'll talk again soon. I'll be in touch. We'll schedule. God, God bless you, sir. All right. Joseph Olson, Principia Scientific International.com. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos. Back, uh, well, next week is a repeat. Orthodox Easter. Don't forget. Uh, we'll pull something nice out of the audio archives for you. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move, o- move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.